So I think we're ready to go. My name is Katrin Benholt. I'm a correspondent for the New York Times. And I'm going to be chairing this afternoon's sessions on heroes, villains, and victims, the dangerous politics of international migration. I've just been spending quite a lot of time in Wales and Scotland. <laughs> Did you know that 25% of the population in Wales is foreign-born? That's compared to 10% in Scotland and England. Wales has this really long eastern border, and they complain about these floods of immigrants coming across the border and diluting local, local culture. English immigrants, that is. And I have a feeling if we were to apply those three categories that we're using today, um, I'm pretty sure that English immigrants in Wales would not be considered victims or heroes. On a slightly more serious note, I just got back from Glasgow this morning. I've been in Scotland for the week. And I must say that one of the most inspiring things that I've witnessed there at polling stations and during rallies earlier in the week has been the amount of Pakistanis and other Asians and Chinese people and even English people <laughs> debating the future of their country and deciding the future of their country, their home country, Scotland. Whatever you make of Scottish nationalism, the nationalism implicit in the organization of this referendum is a very refreshing nationalism in my mind. It's very inclusive. Everyone living in Scotland could vote. Scots outside of Scotland could not vote. It is a civic nationalism rather than an ethnic nationalism. I found it refreshing because these days we spend most of our time worrying about the other kind of nationalism, the exclusive kind, the kind that fears or even detests immigration. And I think the 85% turnout that we saw this week is also proof that a diverse nation can come together at the ballot box. I really think that the referendum campaign in Scotland has strengthened the allegiance minority groups in Scotland feel towards Scotland. There were grassroots groups on both sides of the divide. There were Asians for the yes and Asians for the no. There were Polish for yes and Polish for no. They had these grassroots groups. Chinese for yes and Chinese for no. Go figure. One of the people I met was Humza Yousaf, whose father arrived in Glasgow from Pakistan in the 1960s. Mr. Yousaf is a member of the SNP. His father was actually the first non-white member of the SNP in the 1960s. He is a member of the Scottish Parliament. He wears a kilt on special occasions, he tells me, and at the moment he's in the process of designing his own tartan, the Yousaf tartan, <laughs> which will live alongside its McDonald and McDuff counterparts for all the Yousafs who will come after him, and he hopes it'll be many. Now, Mr. Yusuf gave me his vision of nationalism. He said, it doesn't matter where you come from. What matters is where we're going as a nation. You can be Pakistani Scottish, Polish Scottish, even English Scottish. The lesson that I took away from Scotland this week is as simple as it is profound. Treat immigrants as citizens, and they will be citizens. Instead of citizens or equals, we prefer to think of immigrants often in these stereotypes. They are victims of exploitation or villains who take our jobs or occasionally heroes who leave behind loved ones at home or risk their lives in order to be able to send money back from abroad. It is these stereotypes that I hope to discuss tonight and dissect, hopefully, in a way that allows us to move forward and come up with some fresh thinking on immigration politics. It is my pleasure and my privilege to introduce to you this very distinguished panel of professors at Oxford, all of them, there's Bridget Anderson, Professor of Migration and Citizenship, Hain de Haas, Associate Professor of Migration, and Martin Roos, Associate Professor of Political Economy. I will ask each of them to speak for 10 minutes or less, if possible, um, on their various visions and, and ideas. And then I hope we're going to have to re a really good debate after that. It's an issue that polarizes, that people get passionate about, and I hope we'll have lots of polarization and, and passion in the room, and then bring it all together at the end with some kind of sense of of solution. Let's maybe start with Hein, in the spirit of starting on a positive note. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Hein, you've been talking, you've been, you've, been, you've been assigned the hero section. So we often read these stories about immigrants as heroes, sending back money to their families. We read about how remittances are more important than development aids. And I just wonder, first of all, how significant these stories are in the big picture, but also whether some of those stories are really more about us and, you know, alleviating the guilt we feel about treating immigrants generally quite badly. 
Uh, thank you. Um, well, on a different note, by the way, I was on the Isle of Wight last year, and people were talking, complaining about mainlanders. And I think, <laughs> who are mainlanders? These are pe people from the British mainland. So I always imagined the mainland to be Europe, but <laughs> this is repeated on a different scale in many places. So I think this is universal. Um, the others are always dangerous. Um, well, actually, not that long ago, many states treated their migrants as potential traders. So I think the sort of new idea of migrants as heroes, development heroes, is actually rather new. If you go to many countries around the world, if you go a bit back in history, in countries like Turkey or India, or Morocco or Mexico, the idea of your compatriots moving abroad and taking up American or German or British citizenship was seen as trading your nation. And the idea was to go back. If you don't go back, you're not loyal to your nation. And I think there has been a big change in that sense, that uh, many states around the world have become much more open to issues like dual citizenship. Also coming forward from the realization that even if some of your fellow country uh, people leave forever, it doesn't mean they're really left. Because in this world it's very easy to communicate, to travel. So even if you're an Indian living in California, you can still contribute to your country of origin. So this idea that it's only through return that you can be that hero, I think that has changed a lot. And it also means that a lot of states of the world, like the countries I, I mentioned, have become much more open and have started to treat also in public campaigns and political discourses, migrants as heroes, people who will have the potential to, to, to stimulate development and, and democratization in, in origin countries. So it's been a big shift. And one of the elements and the reasons why this has become so um, prominent in the debate is that uh, the amount of money migrants send back, nobody knows how much exactly, but there are some estimates of 300 billion US dollars a year flowing back in money sent back by migrants to developing countries, outstrips by far uh, development aid, for instance. And probably it's much more money because lots of money is sent informally. We don't even measure it. And I think that has been, people have become much more aware of that. It also means that the so-called aid industry has discovered remittances because, in a way, it was a threat as well to that sort of uh, th that sector because of the enormous amount migrants uh, send back home. So you also see that many so-called development organizations like the United Nations Development Program have sort of uh, given much more attention to the whole issue of so-called migration and development. Now, and there is a lot of research that indeed shows that the brain drain is too negative a picture, that even people who leave forever often contribute to development in origin countries. First of all, by helping out family back home sending money back often uh, generates uh, an enormous potential for families back home to improve the standards of living, to send their kids to school, to receive medical treatment when it's necessary. But on top of that, there is more and more evidence showing that migrants often also play a positive role in business development in origin countries or, of course, in, in the political debate. So ideas also flow back to origin countries. So I think in that sense, it is not just based on a perception, it's also a factual uh, development. And I think there is also an increasing realization in countries around the world that if conditions are bad, it's very difficult to stop people from moving out. Leaving your country is a fundamental human right, and almost all efforts by states to try to stop people from leaving have bitterly failed, or have, were even counterproductive. I can give you one example. The Moroccan state has tried to prevent people from leaving by excluding people from civil service with a higher education degree. But that was, of course, the best recipe of people not returning to the country of origin. And most countries have given up this approach of treating or trying to control migrants abroad and seeing them as a development resource. But I think to your question, I think there's a certain level of truth because I think this sort of positive discourse on migrants as heroes, I think, has gone over the top over the last few uh, years particularly stimulated by organizations like the World Bank. Uh, migrants have been portrayed as the sort of silver bullet strategy for development, where other development strategies have failed. The migrants has now been discovered as the key to development in origin countries. And here this enormous amount of money migrants send back is always mentioned as a proof of the development potential. But I think that's dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous because it risks shifting the responsibility for development on the shoulders of migrant, hardworking migrants who are primarily concerned about the welfare of their family, who are often bitterly exploited in the receiving country, and it would be highly naive to expect them 
to sort of make the difference in origin countries. In my own research in Morocco, I asked many migrants, why don't you invest? Well, it was pretty clear. Corruption, uh, lack of legal security if you have title deeds, um, um, lack of democratic accountability more generally. There are many general reasons why migrants are hesitant either to return or to invest in their country of origin. So I think partly it's part of this idea of this neoliberal idea that people themselves bring, bring development. Migrants themselves can do it. They are the heroes. They are going to make the difference. But that would be to overestimate what individual migrants can do and would also be and is often a strategy of states to, to sort of get rid of that own responsibility. And some countries in the world have purposefully, purposefully designed emigration policies in order to do exactly that. Dictator Marcos in the Philippines designed the emigration program. First of all, to get rid of potential discontent, to get rid, to alleviate some of the problems like poverty and unemployment. You'd rather have people leaving your country than raising their voice in your own country. And at the same time, raising money to be sent back to the, to the origin country. And many other countries in the world have followed that strategy. So in that sense, it can even be a strategy of governments to preserve the status quo and to avoid that people are starting to raise their voice. And I've often wondered whether in a country like Tunisia, where we saw the start of, of revolts against dictatorial governments, the fact that that happened exactly in the time that Europe was in crisis and there were no migration opportunities in Tunisia. And the sort of discontent couldn't migrate away and the voice was raised within the country. So we see a much more complicated dynamic. Migration can also be a strategy for origin countries to sort of shovel out the problems and try to prevent that people raise their voice in their own country. I think there's another issue here as well, and that's more on the side of wealthy countries that um, are the destination countries of many countries in the world, is that um, this discourse on migration and development can become an excuse to uh, exploit migrants. Because it often is coupled with this idea, we need to design policies of temporary migration. The only good migrant is a temporary migrant. And this is often coupled to this idea that it's only when migrants return, it's good for development. So in a way, stripping migrants of rights is justified by a development discourse. Whereas there's a lot of evidence that the migrants who have the highest potential to mean something for the origin country are migrants who are citizens. Are migrants who, because they have double citizenship, can move back and forth whenever they like. If you strip migrants of their rights, they're going to stay put. And particularly migrants without any rights have not enough means to mean something for the origin country. It's not either integration in Britain or development in the origin country, it's often end-end. And this sort of idea that migrants are great, this hero discourse, is used in fact to strip migrants of their rights. And this is what we have seen in many countries in the world. And this is why negotiations about, about um, migration development have never had any results because origin states plea for more free mobility for the citizens because paradoxically the free mobility is the higher the likelihood migrants are going to circulate and go back. If you put in a barrier, migrants are going to stay put and are not going to return. And at the same time, stripping them of their rights means they have less resources to mean something for the origin country. I'm almost there. Um, so we could say that on the receiving country side, the wealthy part of the world, restrictive immigration policies have reduced the poverty reduction and developmental potential of migration. Because European, North American countries have made it more difficult to migrate, have imposed all sorts of barriers. We have not seen it has led to reduced migration. Migration has rather gone up for a whole series of reasons I cannot mention here. They are to do with labor markets and all sorts of other reasons. What we have seen is the selection of migration has more become more difficult. Whereas in the 19, early 1990s, uh, Moroccans and Turks could move freely to southern European countries, which they did, to, for instance, work in harvest and would return after um, uh, having worked for a few months or a few years. Uh, restrictive immigration policies have not stopped migration. Actually, migration has only skyrocketed since then. They have made it more difficult for poor people to migrate, which means people have to pay more money. So the sort of profile of migrants has changed, which means that the poorest Moroccans or Turks can't migrate anymore. And that clearly reduces the, the potential of migration to contribute to development in origin countries. 
So restrictions haven't stopped people from migrating. They have made migrants more vulnerable for exploitation by employers. But this discourse of migrants as heroes has been, I think, abused in this context, exactly to pursue a policy that makes migrants less likely to be heroes for development in origin countries. A last note is that this relation between development and migration has been completely misunderstood because a last sort of twist on this discourse is that if migrants send enough money back and return and invest, this will create development in the origin country, so migrants won't migrate anymore. And you can also hear this storyline if boats cross the Mediterranean, that some people say, okay, it doesn't really help to, to, to put in more restrictions because people come anyway, we have to develop origin countries. Now there's a lot of research that shows that the countries with the highest migration rates in the world are not the poorest countries in the world. I just mentioned a few countries. Turkey, Morocco, Mexico, the Philippines are typically middle-income countries. The explanation is very simple. It requires resources in the first place to migrate. You need simply resources. Either you have to know people or money. You have to have certain knowledge. And secondly, if people get better educated, which is often the case in middle-income countries, people have more aspirations, which often means they can only fulfill those aspirations by migrating out. So it would be an illusion to think that, for instance, in sub-Saharan Africa, where we see the poorest countries in the world, any form of development, economic or human, will reduce migration. The likelihood is increased migration. Thank you very much, and thank you for sticking to the timetable almost by one minute. It must be because you're Dutch. Um, <laughs> Bridget, um, let me turn to you. You sort of, with the victim title, you were sort of on the other end of the spectrum. I mean, rather than heroes who sort of take charge of their fate, and again, this may be an unrealistic story as we've just heard, victims would be people who basically are at the behest of the injustices at home and in their, in their host countries entirely without agency. Is this story accurate or is this story actually depriving them of some sort of dignity and agency that if we allowed them to have it, we might get along better? Thanks, Katrin. Well, I think unlike the kind of hero discourse, the victim one, I think, has a much longer history, certainly from the point, from the position of what now counts as receiving countries. I mean, if we think back to um, even the uh, distinction between the refugee and the economic migrant, we can see that the idea of the person who is forced and who is deserving of help versus the person who makes choices and who is not so deserving of help really has quite a, quite a long history. And I would argue that what we're seeing, in fact, is um, a shift from uh, the deserving refugee to the deserving victim, more specifically the deserving victim of, of trafficking. Um, so we, we hear a lot about uh, migrants as victims, whether it's migrants as victims in the journeys. I mean, we've all heard about the um, terrible events uh, in the Mediterranean a couple of days ago. Um, but also migrants as victims in the countries of origins, migrants as victims of exploitative employers, of um, uh, um, abusers, and so on. And so in a way, this seems to be something that governments and migrants organizations and NGOs can agree on that, you know, this is, this is bad. So is this a good starting point for debate? And I suppose what I want to say is that we have to be careful. We have to be careful about falling for the migrant as victim as suggesting some kind of good starting point for the politics of migration. And um, I want to suggest there are four problems that I can think of with respect to this. Maybe you can think of um, some additional ones. Um, so the first problem is that we're endlessly being told that trafficking and um, uh, abuse of migrants is on the rise. And we always have to be careful when you hear this because um, there's a lot of numbers that are thrown around and then when you start digging beneath the numbers you quickly realize that they're quite suspect. But I think what we can say is that what is on the rise is border deaths and yeah. violence. Since the fall of the Berlin Wall there have been 27 walls I think built in order to try to manage the movement of 
populations. Um, there have been an estimated 20,000 deaths in the Mediterranean alone, and that's the people whose names we know and whose deaths are reported since 1996. And the numbers every year are going up. So it does seem that there are, um, uh, we do know that there are increasing numbers of deaths. But actually, increasingly, the um, border policing, which accounts for many of these deaths, is actually in order to protect people. Is put there the, the language is that this is a preventative me um, means for particularly preventing trafficking. Uh, so I've got some lists uh, of what anti-trafficking cons um, constitutes um, for the purposes of uh, um, being acknowledged as a good global citizen. So the establishment of joint commissions on border cooperation with neighbouring states, surveillance committees, increasing naval patrols, searching ships, stricter controls along coasts, inspection of entries and exit, border checkpoints, and so on and so forth. So these are put in as anti-trafficking measures. Um, and the impact of anti-trafficking initiatives on human rights of victims has been found to repeatedly undermine or violate the rights of migrants. So there is a problem with the kinds of practical responses to the argument that migrants are victims. But one reason I think that this logic works is that unlike, I, I compared the refugee and the victim of trafficking, but unlike the refugee who is helped by being admitted, the victim of trafficking is helped by being refused admittance, by staying at home. If they didn't move, then they wouldn't get into so much trouble. But are people's best interests necessarily served by staying at home? Well, Hein has spoken um, a bit about this, so I won't have to go into it. But I, um, uh, there's a, an interesting political scientist who's argued that citizenship in a wealthy state is like a feudal privilege handed down from parent to children. We're not richer than many people in the world because we're cleverer or because whatever Oxford says, um, or because you know, we're richer because of certain benefits that we have because of where we're born, because of our citizenship and so on. And actually immigration policies are not neutral in this. What nationalities find it easier to travel internationally have the fewest visa requirements? The UK, the US, and Finland. What states have the most visa requirements? Afghanistan, Iraq, and Somalia. So immigration controls are not neutral, and those states that I just mentioned are not naturally poor, and they're not naturally at war. These inequalities have a history and a political economy that is not independent from that of wealthy states. So another problem with the kind of victim approach, I think, is it doesn't lead to a discussion about these kinds of underlying issues. The problem quickly becomes exploitative employers, clients of prostitutes, and so on. Third problem with the victim starting point is that it can make it difficult to make connections between exploited and abused migrants, who are often um, uh, thought to be illegal, and exploited and abused citizens. But actually, illegality, vulnerability, and exploitation are not solely the provenance of migrant workers. Uh, the Migration Advisory Committee report earlier this year found that on, on average, a company in this country can expect a minimum wage inspection once every 250 years, <laughs> and a prosecution once every million years. So what does this actually tell us about British jobs? for British workers, when we compare that with the amount of money, enforcement and inspection that is put into immigration regimes. There's a disconnect here. Fourth problem, <clears throat> as um, uh, you intimated, Catherine, is that being a victim is different from being victimised. So a victim has to be a certain kind of person. They certainly can't be a criminal. They have to be innocent, preferably a child. They can't have chosen to have worked in the sex trade or paid to get on the back of a lorry. It's difficult to pity them, especially if they've encouraged others. Certainly, if they're angry or mean-spirited or generally not very pleasant people, also becomes a problem for victim narratives. So we have to strongly imagine that they've been kind of they nice people who've been forced into a very difficult situation. Now, we know from our own lives, I think, that we're, all of us, neither victims 
nor agents. We're neither kind of rational cost-benefit calculators, nor totally at the mercy of, the, of um, structural forces. We're all something in between. And the problem with the migrant as victim language is it doesn't allow that migrants are actually just the same as you and I and somewhere in between. And actually, I think increasingly, many people are uncomfortable at the horrors we see unfolding at our borders and in many places in the world, and the contrast between our very comfortable lives often and the lives of others. And Wendy Brown has written about how she's looked at how, how is it that we can demonstrate such indifference and argues that the world is divided into grievable and ungrievable lives. So the migrant victim, I think, could become the grievable life, and perhaps we need victim stories, as your question to Hein intimated, in order to make us feel more comfortable, um, or in order to convince us that actually it is possible to be liberal and to care yeah. about human rights, and yet still to have this inequality and to have um, uh, border con and to have these kind of tough border controls. Martin, is it possible to be liberal and sort of well-educated like most of us here? and still say that immigrants are stealing our jobs? Are they the villains in our society, even though none of our jobs is on the line? What about the bottom 10% bottom in the income distribution? Should we care about them and their jobs being at risk? Uh, thank you, Katrin. Um, so I have the privilege of talking about uh, migrants as villains. And I will interpret that as uh, saying a few things about immigration debates uh, about the impact of immigrants in receiving countries. And um, I, mean, I don't need to tell this audience that immigration is a controversial topic and very divisive and polarized, but um, I do a lot of international comparative work. And uh, people are always surprised, certainly British people are always surprised when I say that uh, the, the immigration debate in Britain, I consider much more evidence-based and progressive than in many other countries, especially continental European countries. And by progressive, I mean uh, not necessarily that policies are better, however we define better, but um, there is uh, more, more of an effort here to relate, to talk about evidence. And uh, in the United States, as far as I can see it, for a long time, the debate has been extremely divisive. So on any issue, what's the impact of immigration on wages, on unemployment? You have a, multi a multitude of studies with hugely different findings. I mean, you have one, you know, one finding that says, oh, it's terrible, there's all those job losses, and another study that says, brilliant, all these jobs are created. And uh, even among academics, I think, there's a lot of polarization. I'm afraid in Britain we're moving toward that now, that uh, a lot of organizations, uh, I think, are very, very predictable, and uh, what I call um, immigration hardliners, even among academics. So by that I mean people who say that immigration is all good or all bad. And uh, you know, I won't name any names, but I'm, I'm saying that for these organizations, as soon as you hear that they're working on a particular immigration question, you immediately know the answer before you read the report. And from a researcher, I mean, that's a bit unusual, of course, because, um, yes, we all have views, but you know, there are a few things in life that are all good or all bad. So one of the main things that I want to say is that no matter how you look at it, immigration, at least in the short run, always creates winners and losers. There are trade-offs, and that might be very banal thing to say, but I think the very important point about this is that I think immigration debates are confused and, and polarized, not necessarily because we disagree about the impacts, for example, what's the impact of immigration unemployment, but we profoundly disagree, and more importantly, we don't discuss the ethics of the whole thing, which means, what does this impact mean? Okay, we agree that immigration lowers the wages of, of low-income British workers, but what does that mean for policy? Is that important or not? Whose interests are we really interested in when we carry out immigration policy? I think that is the key question that should be debated, and that is not really ever uh, articulated very well. Um, I'll make a distinction between high and low-skilled migrants and focus on low-skilled migrants, because those, in a way, are most often talked about as the villains. In general, uh, high-skilled migrants are welcome in most high-income countries. There's a global race for talent. You can have a big discussion how to define skill and talent. Um, but it's low-skilled immigration that is most restricted. And of course, the key question of me is, well, aren't they taking our jobs? Aren't they lowering wages? And I'm afraid the debate about the labor market impacts of immigration, the academic debate, conforms to all the stereotypes that people have about economists, um, uh, in that uh, it is very complex. Uh, <laughs> there are lots of caveats, and there are very few clear answers. And the simple truth is that 
measuring the impact of immigration on wages or unemployment is an exceedingly difficult thing to do. There's lots and lots of methodological problems. And for Britain alone, probably, uh, if you look at wages, you probably have six or seven um, studies on unemployment. Employment, you have two or three studies that all say slightly different things. So I think at the end, um, there's judgment involved. Whoever says that the impact is X makes a judgment based on the evidence. And what I will say is that what those statistical studies find is, somewhat surprisingly, that immigration has very little impact on average wages and on average employment rates in the economy. Now, as always, averages hide variation across income distribution. What these studies also find is that immigration does have some adverse impacts on the wages of the lowest income earners. And it raises the wages of better educated people. Now, those adverse impacts tend to be very small, but they are adverse. So if you take that finding at face value, uh, what, what you can say is that immigration lowers the wages of the lowest income earner, and thereby, everything else being equal, increases wage inequality in the host country. Of course, as Hein was saying, migration itself can be to huge benefit to migrants themselves and their families. So one, one issue is that I think there is some trade-off between global justice and domestic justice, because migration of the low-skilled reduces global inequalities, because it gives people the chance to uh, get higher wages in high-income countries, but at the same time it increases, to some extent at least, wage inequality within host countries. So that brings me back to my initial point. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends on whose interests you care about. Mm. And I think that precise point is what people don't make clear very often. If you're sitting at the World Bank, you're saying, well, you know, we want to encourage development. And, you know, uh, there's the, the, develop the World Bank says that there's no more effective strategy to raise the incomes <coughs> of people in poor countries than to give them a job in a rich country. Of all the development projects you can imagine. That's the most effective strategy. Well, you know, but then you have some adverse impacts in receiving countries. So ethics are terribly important. Now, the problem with that finding that immigration generally only has small impact is that it is in stark contrast to research with employers. Um, Bridget and I have done quite a bit of work trying to find out whom employers recruit um, different types of migrants, British workers. And certainly, in low-wage labor markets in Britain, and there's evidence for other countries as well, many employers have a clear preference for migrant workers um, uh, over British workers, certainly. Migrants, you'll see in the papers, are better workers, got a better work ethic, they work harder, they work for less. And um, there can be all kinds of reasons why employers prefer migrant workers. And in a way, the policy challenge then is that, well, how do you get to how do you get the worker to employ the British worker? How do you get the employer to recruit the British worker? Well, the previous question, of course, is, is should you force a British employer or an American employer to first look for British or American workers? Um, again, most employers I meet are not patriots in the sense that they look for workers within the country first. Most employers I meet say, I want the best worker, no matter where the worker comes from. Now, of course, the government cannot meet that demand always because in most cases, the best workers are not in the host country. I mean, it would be ridiculous to assume that for all jobs, British workers are best qualified. I mean, it so happens that Britain has a terrible... Um, the construction sector has no training system, very low pay. So, of course, Polish workers are better workers because they come from systems that have... they're much better trained. Um, many other examples. So, the policy challenge is national governments basically have to draw the line somewhere and say, well, for some jobs, we say you cannot have the best worker. You need to employ a domestic worker. And how to do that is, is very, very difficult in practice. And where to draw the line is very difficult in practice. Um, but I will I mean, just come back to the point again that um, ethics matter. And maybe I'll, I'll finish with that. The, all, in, in Britain and in many other countries, immigration policies, like all other policies, require impact assessments. So in Britain, if you have a policy, you have what's called an economic impact assessment. Because central government, you want to know, do I build a new road, do I build a hospital, or do I change the immigration policy, what are the impacts? And it's fantastically difficult to do an impact assessment with immigration. And the primary reason for that is that it's unclear what the reference group is. Um, by that I mean, if you build a hospital, you know, how is this building of the hospital impacting on these people in this city or in this country? Now, with immigration, right, immigration impacts on whom? 
on the pre-existing population. Now, what if migration benefits migrants hugely? Do we, that, do we count that as a benefit? So that's the debate about, do we talk about immigration raising GDP or looking at GDP per capita? And so the Treasury endlessly says in this country, immigration has, I don't know, benefits 8, eight billion pounds every year. Well, yes, more people tend to produce more. You have a, you know, more people, greater GDP, unless you think that an immigrant replaces a domestic workers one for one. But you might say that doesn't tell us anything about the impacts on the pre-existing population. If you, even if you look actually at average earnings, if you admit a highly skilled doctor from abroad who earns higher than average wages, average wages in the economy will go up. It doesn't matter that anybody else is better off. It doesn't mean that. So I think when you do these impact assessments, one fundamental challenge you have is whose impacts do you take account of? Um, so I'll just conclude by uh, kind of repeating the, the key points. I think that international labor migration always creates trade-offs, at least in the short run. Um, there are winners and losers. And that means there are some exceedingly difficult ethical questions that that raises. How comfortable are we of an immigration policy that benefits employers, benefits most consumers, but harms a small number of domestic workers competing migrants in, in that job? Should the priority be to protect these workers, or do we say we, take, you know, we accept that as collateral damage of the immigration policy? Um, so I think the key point really is to start talking much more explicitly about trade-offs and being much more clear what we're trying to achieve. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much to all three of you. Um, I'm going to spend about 10 minutes kicking the debate off here, but um, I'd like you to start thinking about your own questions because I'd really want everybody to get involved. So start thinking now. Um, let me start with Hein. I was quite intrigued by, um, you, you know, you mentioned the Philippines and the way that Marcos uh, helped engineer this remittance economy. And I sort of have this image in my mind of Western countries and developing countries almost colluding uh, explicitly or implicitly on this. Because, I mean, even in London, where I live, I mean, many of my friends rely on illegal labor in some shape or form. When I lived in Paris before, nearly everyone I knew had a Filipino nanny or maybe a West African nanny. So, you know, every restaurant kitchen, I once did a story on, on, on you know, high-level restaurants in, in Paris, and every single restaurant kitchen was full of illegal workers. And you actually, you know, you always have demonstrations in Paris, enough that there's nothing new about that, but you actually had the bosses take to the streets when the government started yeah. to threaten to put quotas on, on uh, or, or sort of have that, you know, have, have, a, have a, basically force bosses to report illegal um, workers um, against, you know, for, for, for threat of, of having their restaurants shut. So what I'm saying is it seems to me that our economies rely on illegal labor. And I wonder whether there's any kind of assessment that you could give us if we actually implemented what our policies are on the books and we got rid of the people that shouldn't be in the country, would our economy collapse? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, the point is there is no political willingness to really do that. Because I think you were just mentioning how likely it is that you get an actual control as an employer. And, and in any country in the world, most countries, it's actually quite low. So I think that actually shows something quite powerful. It means that although officially we only need high-skilled migrants and the best and the brightest, and everybody agrees on that, the big taboo or the big sort of elephant in the room is, is lower-skilled labor. But that's and, my point. Like, what I'm saying is we rely well, on it so much. Well, our current economic systems increasing, uh, some sectors, I would say, of our, you, you mentioned a few sectors. Yeah. And, uh, in some countries, construction, agriculture for sure, uh, intensive agriculture in particular in many countries in the world, yeah. uh, Holland, America, very clearly, all the flowers and stuff. I mean, it's yeah. often illegal labor that supports that. Uh, restaurants, I mean, there's many sectors, uh, domestic work, depending on the country. And we redesign our systems in such ways that we, in a way, make ourselves more dependent on it. Because sort of neoliberal policies that have privatized a lot of sectors, I mean, in, main, uh, in my country, the Netherlands, uh, until recently, until now more or less, childcare was totally government-run. And you had childcare centers where qualified, mostly Dutch people would work because the government is, is, is um, um, abolishing all sorts of subsidies for childcare, more and more people are going to buy in childcare themselves, privately. Which means you create a sector, a new sector, for irregular labor. Mm. And it's not through a migration policy this happens. I think that's another problem. We always talk about migration policy. Mm. But our general economic and labor market policies 
to a large extent, shaped the nature of demand. Mm. And we have shaped, reshaped our economies in the Western world in such a way that we have made certain sectors, I think it would be very deceiving to think that our economy is totally dependent on regular uh, labor, but I certainly we have reshaped certain sectors in such ways, we have to made more structurally dependent on uh, such forms of labor. And from a very critical point of view, you can even argue that the sort of discourses that make migrants too villains, so we, sh we, we shouldn't get them and we, we should try to block our borders from them, justify their exploitation. Right. And, and they serve a certain purpose because we can sort of almost soothe our sort of bad conscience with this idea, but they're not supposed to be here. And we make it even more difficult to come. What actually happens, you make people more dependent on smuggling, you make it more difficult to come, people become more easily victim indeed of situations in which they may die at the border or suffer incredibly, but actually doesn't solve any problem. So how do we deal with that? Because we it's, could, you know, do, you, do we just legalize? Uh, you know, after a certain, I mean, this is sort of the question of the amnesties well, and whether that would encourage even more legal migration. Well, amnesties we have been part and parcel of almost any immigration policy in all countries around the world. And this is why amnesties happen. If you control a phenomenon, whether it's immigration or something else, there's always people who are going to break the rules. So uh, uh, amnesties serve because a certain purpose, because no democracy wants to tolerate for several generations a large part of the population not having any citizenship at all. So this happens time and again. Um, I think the real debate needs to be our, how do we want to structure our economies and societies. And that's a much broader debate than just a debate on immigration policies. I think it would be an illusion to think migration will ever stop. I think that should be clear. But obviously governments can do something about immigration. So in the Netherlands, when I discuss uh, migration, I often give this example. I say, but you're redesigning your economy in such a way that you're going to make us even more dependent on all sorts of forms of immigration that lots of people would not see as desirable. And that's not the fault of migrants. That's the way we have redesigned our economies. I, I'm, I'm not suggesting yeah. migration will disappear, but governments do have obviously a certain influence. And Martin was also given examples. Governments do have a certain level of agency. It would be an illusion you can totally eradicate migration or irregular labor because also Irregular labor has always existed, also amongst native populations, we know that, to different degrees in different countries. But you can do something as a government, but it's not just through border controls. But that's a symptom. Well, it could be issuing, for example, it could be issuing, you know, focused on certain sectors depending on this kind of labor well, that maybe the native population actually doesn't care to do. Well, I gave you, can I give you one example? Yes. I mean, I already gave the example of Moroccan workers in Spain. Now, there's only 15 kilometers separating Morocco from Spain until 1991, when f Spain and other Southern European countries introduced visas for North Africans. It was perfectly normal for Moroccans to go to a country like Spain or to Italy to help with the harvest and return after the harvest. Most migrants don't want to stay in Spain or Italy. But in a way, the sad history is we put in place borders and migrants stayed put. Because when you have to invest so much money into coming, you're less likely to return. Mm. So we have interrupted circular migration. There's a lot of research on Mexican-US migration, which shows exactly the same. That the big perm move towards permanent settlement happened after border controls were stiffened yeah. up. I'm not saying migrants wouldn't stay without those controls, but we certainly have pushed migrants into permanent also. settlement. Yeah. Let, oh yeah, I think both want to jump in on this. And I want to just broaden it. Can I just give you two other things to think about as you answer as well? You know, there are two forces that we haven't discussed at all and I think that are in the back, background and that are basically upon us in the next decade, so not far away at all. One is demography. We're going to need, uh, many people say, more um, immigration on that front because we have a rapidly aging population, as we all know, uh, which is living longer, which is wonderful, but it means we need more taxpayers. And the other thing is, and that's uncomfortable because it sort of conflicts with the former, is this issue of automation that's been given a lot of attention recently. You know, we're now, as some people say, on the sort of second half of the chessboard in terms of exponential, um, you know, growth in processing speed of, of smart machines. We are now at a time where there are prototypes of robots out there that can pick strawberries. I mean, it's now economical to think about designing robots to do the work of farmhands, which tells us something about the kind of jobs that are going to be out there in the next 10 years. There's a study coming out of this university that was published, I think, earlier this year that says that in the, you know, by the end of the decade, basically, 47% of all jobs in this economy can, take, can theoretically be automated economically. So that raises a much greater question about whether we're going to need any immigration anymore. 
and of course beyond that what we're going to do to our, our own labor markets but let's keep that to the side for now if you keep those two things in mind as you answer well i suppose one thing is i don't know that you can put to the side the question of what are we going to do about our own labor markets and then just thinking about you know that whole automation question i mean one way of ensuring that a just to sort of uh, use as a British job becomes a migrant job is to automate it. If you turn something which is a sociable experience into a business of pressing a button, then you're more likely to find that actually British people don't want to be doing that for the rest. People with a choice or with more choices don't want to be doing this for the rest of their lives. So you're going to um, uh, make it something that actually people who come perhaps with a temporary mindset. So I think that's the other thing we have to remember is that um, one of the differences, I think, between um, migrants and nationals is actually very often people have a temporary mindset. So if I think about my kids, there is no way that they would go and work on a farm in the United Kingdom. No way. Whereas go to work on a farm in Australia, quite different because yeah. they're thinking they're doing that. They're just going to do it for six months and then they're going to come home and so on and so forth. So I think now whether or not they then get trapped in doing that for the rest of their lives is a different is a different question. But I think that kind of temporary mindset and the way that then it means that you engage with the labor market. So if we think about the sorts of jobs that are sort of typically imagined as being jobs where migrants work, they're basically jobs which have no, have no progression. You know, basically, you're going to be in this job as a carer, for example, you're going to be in the minute, it's going to be a minimum wage job. There's no, you're never going to be able to improve. You're never going to become a manager. You know, that's it. Actually, you're signing up for that for the rest of your life. So, although interesting, let me just jump in. A lot of these jobs, the personal service jobs that are unskilled, actually are very hard to automate. So, interestingly yeah. enough, restaurants, you know, service and restaurants and carers, for example, those jobs will still, still be with us. And, you know, so it's quite an interesting twist on it as well. Yeah, well, and those jobs, I think one reason that those jobs will be, why those jobs, those kinds of jobs are so sort of um, uh, migrant dominated is because of this temporary mindset question. So I think we have to, because I think we also have to move away from this idea of sort of British people being too lazy or sort of thinking they're too good to do certain kinds of jobs. And I think um, uh, one of the questions that um, I would sort of, like us to think about in terms of um, illegality and irregularity is also it, the, the kinds of um, irregularity and illegality that are created by our welfare benefit system, which basically is very unwieldy and which um, uh, also, if people are not uh, are given very low amount, actually quite often forces people into the informal economy. So I would say this is not just a question for migrants and that increasingly we're going to also find British nationals doing those kinds of uh, jobs. The other thing is that um, uh, it's not just about people who are um, undocumented or illegal. Um, that actually when we regulate jobs through immigration control, what do we do? We tie, if it's low skilled, we tie workers to their employers for a temporary period. So we say you can come in for a year to do this job and you have to work for this employer. Now, what does that mean? It means that the employer has an additional mechanism of control over that worker, that actually the worker has, knows they have to kind of behave and they can't join a trade union and, um, and they better not ask for a wage rise or their employer won't renew their visa. And that is in work that I've done that's very clear that that has a consequence for employer-employee relations. And so, mm. While these sorts of controls are then presented as being about protecting the labor market and protecting jobs for British people, interestingly, these are low-skilled jobs. We don't protect good jobs. <laughs> that's um, a global race for talent. We protect the low wage, the poor work. So while that's presented, actually what you might be doing in some circumstances is creating a worker that actually is more desirable for employers. And I think that is one of the reasons why employers will say, oh, British people are lazy and they, you know, and, and we want a migrant. When the work that Martin and I did, which was looking at EU enlargement um, in 2004, when we talked to employers before and after EU enlargement, what we found was that um, Polish workers went from being really hard working and having a great work ethic to being just like British workers and not bothering to get out of bed Was in the morning. Is that because they had spent five years in Britain then? <laughs> <laughs>
that was how it was presented. But actually, of course, it was that they were no longer tied to their employer. Yeah. Martin, you have been wanting to jump yeah, in. And so after that, I'm going to open it up. So Briefly, because I want to make sure we have enough time. The, um, I mean, I'm always very skeptical about this um, argument, employers' arguments, that they need migrant workers. Of course, sometimes, you know, you need migrant labor. But, you know, how do you exactly define that need? And, and the key point is that immigration is not the only answer to labor shortages. Uh, you know, you can maybe you can raise wages to try to attract more local workers. Maybe you can automate, or maybe you should close down. Uh, uh, you know, are all jobs worth keeping in in Britain? And I think it's very important to always ask. You know, what are the incentives? So, my U.S. colleague Phil Martin tells me that uh, um, you know, thinking about wine production, and the same wine is produced in California and Australia. In Australia, it's much more capital intensive. Uh, than in California. Why? Well, because in California there's a huge labor supply of uh, Mexican workers. So the point here is the, the way you produce the technology is dependent on how much labor there is around. And if you have a policy or if you have a situation where there's a lot of cheap labor, then even if the technology is available to pick the strawberries, employers might not choose to use it because it's actually more profitable to use workers. So I think there is the choice. And just to give an example, um, on strawberries, I mean, it's very topical for the UK. So um, for a long time in the UK, uh, it's only non-EU workers have been, um, mostly non-EU workers have been picking strawberries. And the National Farmers Union in this country has gone on record saying that in strawberries and in other uh, similar industries, um, they have a demand for workers who can be guaranteed to remain on the, on the farm during harvesting period. So they want tied workers. They don't want British workers. They don't want East Europeans because they might leave if the rain comes or something like that. You know, they want workers whose work permit says, I have to stay. So that's why the National Farmers Union is lobbying very hard now for a new guest worker program for uh, Ukrainians and others. And so, so the argument is that unless you have these workers, British strawberries cannot be produced. It's not possible. There is technology, but when I've visited a few farms, it's, it's kind of a, it's hard. You cannot, you know, you cannot automate everything because it has to be picked by hand and you know, uh, there are various, various issues. Wait five years. Um, <laughs> well, maybe. But I think it's very hard to, with soft fruit, I think, it's very hard. But, but, but the key question is, does Britain want to have British strawberries? Right? I mean, and I got a lot of hate mail because I suggested, I gave the quote to the economist saying, maybe it's time to let this British strawberry industry slide. Um, and the point is that the majority of strawberries in Britain are imported nowadays, right? Britain. And so the question is, if the only way of producing, producing British strawberries is to have non-EU workers under terrible working conditions on British farms, is it a good idea to keep having British strawberries? And uh, uh, maybe the answer is no. But the point is, there is a choice. And uh, there is a larger question about what kind of economy do you want to have, as Heinz says, and what kind of products do you want to produce? And in general, we say, as countries develop, uh, become you know, more high income, they don't specialize in, in, in products that uh, require very, very low cost, cost workers. I'll just finish with the demography argument. We hear that a lot, and again, I'm very skeptical. Um, I mean, Britain, of course, in a very different situation from the continental European countries, because the main demographic problem in the continental European countries is that population, the population decline, everybody's worked up about that. Um, I think it seems to me that many people in this country would very much welcome a population decline. The main debate here is the population is growing so quickly. And so the immigration debate is, is somewhat different. But of course, there is a very kind of naive argument that uh, immigration can help with um, reducing aging. Well, to some extent, yes. But of course, it's a Ponzi scheme because you know the, the, the point is the immigrants get old as well. Yeah. And, uh, um, uh, and so that means you, know, you, will, you will need an ever-increasing inflow of immigrants if your objective is to maintain pension systems as they are with, with new migrant workers. So maybe we stick with the robots. <laughs> right, questions? The lady there, please. If you just quickly introduce yourself um, and yeah, keep it fairly concise, please. 